Under the leadership of Pastor Todd, our Connections Pastor, we are in the process of developing even more groups that will be starting within this calendar year, and some of them, I think, right away. He's got the schedule on all of that. And you're beginning to see some promotional banners throughout the building as we are launching some of these home groups. Now, if these banners look a little crazy to you... Um, just know that I am such a non-television person, I just, I just don't watch television, that this is so sad. In fact, you're going to probably think it's kind of pathetic of me, but the only one that I can identify is I Love Lucy. That's the only one <laughs> that I can tell you I remember watching. The others are going, I've heard of that, I don't know that I've ever watched it. But suffice it to say... We have some new group leaders going through some training, and, and several uh, new groups will be launching very, very soon, and you're going to be hearing more from Pastor Todd, and the information will be available, I'm sure, on the website and the bulletin and all the places, and I'll even have a little bit more on that later this morning. So whether you think home group participation is for you or not, and I know some of you have already shut me out and gone to your devices or whatever you're doing because you think this is not for you, I'm going to ask you, just open your heart with me for just a few minutes and listen to what I have to say here today. And then we're going to go to the table of the Lord and close out the service. I'm going to take you first of all to Acts chapter 2, the latter part of the chapter, verse 42 through 47, because it gives us the ideal concept of the church. This is the model of what church is supposed to look like. It paints a picture of oneness. It paints a picture of unity. It gives us a model for true community in the church and allows us to see what the church body looks like when it's meeting the needs of people in the way that it's called to, the way that it's designed to function and, and designed to work. For I truly believe this, the church is a family. Thank you for all three of you who agree. Go with me to Acts chapter 2, and let's start with verse 42, and follow me here as, as we go through this. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, which we'll do at the end of the service, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Well, just it doesn't take much delving into this to see all these components of worship, connect, and serve within this passage. It's, it's all right there. But when you compare or contrast this, uh, this picture of what we've just read, of how the New Testament church functioned and what they did, when you compare it with our culture today, the, the difference is quite remarkable. Because folks, whether we like it or not, or whether we even accept it or not, we are living in a culture that is increasingly driving us into isolation. This is not a culture that is drawing us together as we see in this passage. 
everything about the overall direction of the life that we are living and the world that we are living in is pushing us further and further apart. With each new introduction of, of new technology and all the fabulous gadgets and devices that are available to us, and yes, I love anything that's got an apple on it too, I, you know, I love all that stuff. With all these new devices, they, they may do lots of cool things, and, but we are being driven more and more into isolation as individuals. Just go to a restaurant and look what happens the minute the waiter has completed taking their order. Whether it's 20 people in a group or two people, even a husband and wife, what happens? Immediately, we, we, we are driving ourselves into isolation. And direct communication or direct true community comes to a grinding halt. And now we're, rap we're rapidly approaching a time where there's not even a need to go to a store. You don't even have to go to the, the, the marketplace or the agora, the, the, the central marketplace. You can stay at home in your PJs and order everything online and have it delivered to your door and don't even have to speak to the delivery man. Can I get a witness on that? It's true. So while all these cultural changes and things that are happening to, to drive us apart may pander to our egocentric need to make life all about us, that may be true, and, and while it may pander to our desperate need to be sure that we are never hurt by other people, some people they have been hurt and it was so painful and so difficult, they will do anything to be sure that never happens again including isolating themselves from people that they need. And while all this new cultural stuff may pander to our need to be sure we are never, we are never hurt by anyone, so we, we, we keep our distance and we minimize the possibility of being hurt by limiting our exposure to other people, and while this cultural phenomenon may look like it's making sufficient place for our comfort and convenience, it is nevertheless not the biblical way of living. And the challenge to us today, church, as millennial Christians, is this. Do we believe the Bible, and are we going to live by the Bible, or are we going to live by the dictates of our culture? And there is always a press on us about that. We, are, we, we cannot help but be affected by this world in which we live, and it is constantly challenging us in every way, sometimes in very overt ways, sometimes almost in a subliminal way that we don't always grasp. It's pushing us further and further and further away from biblical New Testament living. And I think the danger for us that we have is that while we say we want to live by the biblical mandate... And that sounds good, and in theory we buy into that idea. Our behavior is saying something else. Our behavior is saying that we want to take the Bible and modify it to suit our own preferential living. So let me just go ahead and ask you the straight-ahead question. Why should you be involved in a home group? Why? Number one, because it brings a sense of belonging. It brings a sense of belonging. And you know what? We all feel the need to belong. We are all wired for relationships. We are wired and built to connect on some, on some level with others. God himself exists in relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as his children created in his image, we are relationally centered as well. We have a need for a sense of belonging. 
And even with the internet and email and Facebook and Instagram and text messaging and all the rest, all those things that look like they're connecting, it cannot replace nor can it subdue the need to belong and the need to truly connect human to human, not just device to device. Hello. And what we're seeing is that though all these new ways of communicating, as wonderful as they are and helpful as they can be, while they, can, they cannot quell the problem of loneliness that is rampant in this country. Isn't that odd? More and more ways to talk to each other, and we're lonelier than ever. More and more ways to communicate, and we are further and further apart and more and more isolated. Go figure. It makes no sense. Loneliness is less about being alone and more about the lack of meaningful, personal, sincere connection. When addressing the issue of loneliness, Charles Swindoll, you are very familiar with him, he mentioned an ad that he had seen in a Kansas newspaper. It read, here's the, here's the ad he read, I will listen to you talk for 30 minutes without comment for $5. No, Seriously. Swindoll said, it sounds like a hoax, doesn't it? But the guy was serious. And do you think anybody called? You bet they did. It wasn't long before this individual was receiving 10 to 20 calls a day. And some of you entrepreneurial types go, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> the pain of loneliness was so sharp that some were willing to try anything just for a half hour of being able to talk to somebody. You know, I remember... Lonely days for me were, and when I was trying to connect how this happens in my, in my own life, my folks pastored churches all my life, and there was a period of time, kind of in my middle school years, where uh, there, we had shifted, we moved two or three times, circumstances doesn't matter, nothing untoward going on, but, but there were, my dad was called in some missionary efforts, and, and uh, we, we moved quite a bit, so I was the new kid in school. Hey, anybody, by show of hands, who's been the new kid in school ever? Okay, well, some do that well, but I remember how lonely it felt moving to a new community, and I didn't know anybody yet. I had no roots. I had no history. I had no traction whatsoever, and it's almost a smothering sense of I'm the new person, and I got got nothing here. I can feel so lost in that sense of loneliness. Who knows what I'm talking about? Just that total sense of almost uh, overwhelming loneliness that can come over. That's because we're designed to be people who belong to each other, and a healthy church provides a community where people can belong. So why should you be in a home group? Because it brings a sense of belonging. Why should you be in a home group? Because it brings a sense of support. It's support from brothers and sisters who, who know that perfect time just to bring a meal over when you, to help you get through a time of grief or loss. And many of you have experienced that. Support to be there for those critical times of celebration in the life of you and your family. Support to talk you off the ledge on those times when you're ready to give up on life or ready to give up on your marriage or ready to give up on the church or ready to give up on your job. There's a support system there to talk you off the ledge. I had the privilege of doing that with a friend in another state this this very week, and he used that phrase, "Dan, Dan, you talked me off the ledge this week. Support to hold you before the Lord in prayer, asking for his guidance and to help you when you don't even know how or what to pray yourself. And how wonderful it is to have a sense of support from people with whom you share a common story. 
We heard lots of stories, Becky and I did with the new members group this morning, how they got here. And though the details might be different and might not look exactly the same, it is so wonderful to share a common story. And you know what? If you believe in Jesus, you and I share this common story. We are both sinners saved by grace. How many are sinners saved by grace here today? All right, we have a common story. We, not, we also share a common calling, and that is this. We are called to put off the old and put on the new. We are called to holiness and obedience. We had that same calling as, as believers in Christ. We are called to begin that process of looking less like the world and, and more like Jesus. And when we understand that we are all called to the same thing, that we share the common calling to glorify God in our lives, that helps us in this whole thing we call accountability, to be accountable to each other. We are called to know Christ in our lives and to make him known in the lives of others. In Christian community, we share a common story, we share a common calling, and we share a common goal. We are all pressing toward the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. We are people concerned with the things of God. We are people who care about the things that God cares about, and that's people. Because the greatest investment in life that can be made is any investment that you make in people. Can I get an amen to that today? So why should you be in a home group? Because it affords you the opportunity to have a sense of support from those with whom you share a common story, a common calling, and a common goal. The bottom line is this, church, no matter how independent you like to believe you are, no matter how self-sufficient you may appear to be, the truth is this, we need each other. We need each other. You may not always like each other. You may not always agree with each other, but we need each other. And some people think, well, just because that group, you know, they, they're different than I am. Perfect. That's why you need to be there. Well, they don't dress like I do. Perfect. That's why you need to be there. They think a different way. That's great. That's why you need to be there. We are designed to live in community, and we need each other. Amen. Speaking of lonely, it feels only up here right now. I'm going to take you to something in the Scripture, and I want you to hang with me here. I'm going to take you to a, a, a familiar story and a less familiar story. <clears throat> Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to one of the most famous battle chapters of the Old Testament, known by both children and adults alike, taking you to a battle of two powerhouse kingdoms, in the Old Testament that began to fight not as giant armies, but began to fight with representatives. And so we're talking about none other than David and Goliath. Go with me to this battle scene for just a few moments, because I need to compare this to another story. So, so just let me lay it in place here. And during battles such as this, when armies were depleted of strength and resources, what they would often do is not fight as an army, but fight with representatives. And, you know, doesn't seem like a bad idea to me. Just send out the champions of two countries and let them beat it out, let them fight each other, and that's what they did here. We know this. The Philistines took their champion, who was Goliath, it was a no-brainer, he was easy to pick for that. 
But now Israel has to find a representative, and that's the problem. So when young David volunteers, that's that's the harder thing here. David, this young, small shepherd boy, is going to begin to represent Israel against Goliath, the, the mammoth giant. You know the story as well as anyone. Now today, you and I know the outcome. We know what happened. But if you're there before you know the outcome, the truth is you recognize what an amazing miracle this is from God, who takes this little boy and brings victory that no one expected. Against, completely against all odds, he wins. He comes off the field delivering cheese to his brothers and ends up being the representative for the entire Israeli army. It's a miracle within itself. And we know about this this giant battle, and we know what God did here, and we see how God helped him. We know he had his slingshot, and we had his stones. But I want you to set that in place for just a second, and then I want to take you to another battle and another Philistine giant that David had to face that we know far less about. This one is often completely overlooked. As you turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 21, and we look at the last giant that David faced, that you may not know as much about. And what we're going to see here is that that which worked for David in the first battle with Goliath did not work this time in 2 Samuel chapter 21. A slingshot and stones would not work this time. I know we have sung our songs, our gospel songs through the years that says, he'll do it again, he'll do it again. And can God do it again? Yes. Can he do it the way he did it last time? Yes, he can. Is he obligated to do it the way he did it last time? No. We're the ones who like formulas. We're the ones who like, okay, I can count on God did like this, you know, I... You know, I, I had on a blue shirt that day, and I did so if I wear a blue shirt today, no. We like the formulas, but just because God did it one way, one time, doesn't mean that's the way he's going to do it this time. Second Samuel chapter 21, I'm at verse 15. Once again, the Philistines were at war with Israel. And we, we already talked about this battle with Goliath. Once again, the Philistines were at war with Israel. And when David and his men were in the thick of battle, guess what? David became weak and exhausted. He's tired. And then at verse 16, of all the names in the Bible that you have to try to pronounce, Ishbabinab shows up. Don't you just have to take a minute and go, what was his mother thinking? I have a new baby. What shall we name him? Ishbabinab. Verse 16, Ishbabinab was a descendant of the giants. This was a big dude also. His bronze spearhead weighed more than seven pounds, and he was armed with a new sword. He cornered David, and we just read about David's condition in the the verse before. He's weak and exhausted. Ishbabinab, this giant now, he corners David and he's about to kill him. And I want you to see here, David is facing yet another giant. You have a weary David and he's cornered and he's about to be killed. Now can't you imagine with me 
what might be going through David's mind as he's replaying what happened sometime before with Goliath and how miraculous and stunning that miracle was and how, how it came through. Can't you see him reaching into his backpack and pulling out the slingshot and kind of warming it up and getting the rocks out and wondering why this giant wasn't going down this time? And maybe while David was stunned, this giant Ish Babinob was mocking, saying, Hey, you thought you had this one, didn't you, buddy? And David's thinking to himself, How come this one's not going down? Why can't I get this one to come down? But you take a weary David and you put a giant in front of him that intended to kill him because David could not beat this giant. And now we're at a very, very dangerous juncture. And I want you to see what happens. Look at this again. The giant was armed with a new sword. He's feeling healthy and strong. The guy with a weird name. And he intended to kill David. And look at verse 17. But Abishai, son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue and killed the Philistine. And then David's men declared, look man, you're not going to put us in that condition again. You're not going to go out to battle with us again. Why risk snuffing out the light of Israel? Guess what? The slingshot didn't work this time. There's nothing that's working for David, but here's the amazing thing. How did David win this battle? Not with rocks. Are you ready for this? But with the help of another brother. It wasn't done on his own. It wasn't David going back and doing what he knew how to do best. It wasn't David going back and doing what he was now famous for. His credentials, what he had going for him, as wonderful as that was, guess what? It didn't work this time. It was a completely different plan. It was with the help of others, Abishai being one of the mighty men. It wasn't a rock. It was a friend. It was a brother. The giant came down by the hand of Abishai. Have you ever fought something or been in a battle and faced a giant even maybe since your point of salvation, maybe you have battled depression or you've battled nicotine or alcohol or some self-destructive behavior or drugs or, or whatever it is and seen the victory of God and been grateful for that just like David faced Goliath on his own. And then guess what? And just in case they didn't tell you this in your first discipleship class, I want to give you a little piece of information. It goes like this. They may have forgotten to tell you this. The further you go in God... The giant gets bigger. How many found that to be true? The further you go in God, they may not come as often, but when they do come, they're bigger. They get bigger and bigger. You may not see them as often, but they're bigger. You parents of young children, when you have your family devotion or prayer time, and, and, and can I just say this about family devotion time? I don't know anybody that gets it perfect. Would you just give yourself a little space and grace Nobody gets it perfect. I've heard great leaders of the church, great men of God, say that their family devotion time can sometimes can be riddled with more arguments than they could have, you know, ever. Nobody gets it perfect. And just because you've got an image of what family devotion times and kumbaya and cuddle and all that, you know, it does not always happen like that. 
But that doesn't mean you give up on it. That doesn't mean you don't get back in and try it again. Because be sure at some point you are saying to your kids, you know why we do this, kids? Because it's always easy? No. Because it works with our schedule? No. That's not why. We do this because we know that as you get older, your giants are going to get bigger. And we want to be sure you know how to call on God. That's the main thing. It's the truth about the Christian life. The older you get, the giants may not come as frequently, but when they do come, they're big. And they've got ugly names like Ishbabinab <laughs> that show up. Just wondering who here has ever faced an Ishbabinab that showed up at your door one day? Anybody had an Ishbabinab show up? A giant show up, you might have had a great victory and God came through in wonderful ways and you're shouting all the way how wonderful it is and you go through and then Ishbabinab knocks on the door. I think you know what I'm talking about. And that's what happened to David here at the end of his life, the final part of his career. And all of a sudden this giant shows up and, and he won't go down with a rock. And what David needed was not a rock and a slingshot. He needed a brother. He needed a brother to help him through it, to take this next giant down. If you're like me, you know what it is to have a giant show up. And when they show up like that, appear to be standing over you, mocking you, saying, you don't know what to do with me. You don't know what, you're out of answers. You thought you would know how to handle this. You don't have the experience to handle this. You've not gone through this before. And you can feel that smothering sense in your spirit not knowing what to do. And you quickly learn that your old method of the slingshot and the stones aren't working on this giant this time. And the more you fling your slingshot, the more you realize that nothing's happening. But thank God, there's an Abishai standing in the wings ready to help you. I'm going to tell you this. Sometimes my Abishai has been Des Evans. Other times it's been one of my friends like Randy Hurst or Jaron Davis or Mark Condon. Brian Felton, I, ha I, have a, I have a group of Abishais in my life that I'm so thankful for. Guys who have walked me through, prayed me through, counseled me through, talked me off the ledge a few times because the stones in my slingshot just weren't cutting it this time, just weren't bringing it down. And some of you are sitting there today thinking, you know what, I am trying to fight something. I don't, this thing is not going down. This giant I'm, fa I'm facing will not fall down. I'm doing all the things I know to do. This should be working better than this, and I'm getting smothered by this thing. And we so easily forget that one of the ploys of the enemy is to isolate us and get us to forget our need for the body of Christ. And what happens is this. We find ourselves trying to beat things with rocks, when what is needed is the body of Christ, the brothers and sisters that we have in Christ. Because the higher you go in God, the higher you desire to go in Jesus, just like the building of a building, the higher you want to build a building, the deeper you have to dig the foundation. You want that building to go up high, you got to build, build that foundation even deeper and deeper and deeper. But there is one exception to that. There's one phenomenon that breaks that principle. It's not something that's built, but it's something that grows. And it grows 300 feet up in the air. Yes, the length of a football field. It's the redwood trees. They grow the size, literally, the size of a football field. They're huge. The trunks of these trees are so thick, I've only seen pictures of them. I've not been to Northern California. 
But the, they are so thick. I've, you've seen them, they can carve, and a, a car can drive through the trunks of these trees. That's how big they are. Mammoth trees, Goliath trees, Ishbabinob trees. But here's the part that's hard to believe, church. They can grow up 300 feet. But when they've fallen, what's revealed is the root system only goes down five feet. But what you learn about redwood trees is this. What keeps these trees from ever blowing over is not because of how deep they go, but because you never see them growing alone. Ever. They grow in groups. And under the ground, the roots get all connected to each other somehow. Underneath the ground. So it didn't matter how shallow it is. Those trees are like saying to each other, Brother Redwood, you ain't going nowhere because we're hanging on to you underneath down here. You may think you're going to go off into isolation. You may think you're going to pull away from us, but guess what? We are hanging on to you because you ain't going nowhere. When they find those things falling over, they are so connected at the roots that all the other trees are all intertwined. Because under the ground, guess what? Those trees, as they're growing, they're finding another brother down underground. As those root systems are going. Finding another brother they can hold on to. And that's so they can say that when the wind blows, what you see up top is not what's holding me up. It's underneath what I'm connected to that's holding me together. That's what happens. And David realized this with Abishai, that no matter how pompous he was, no matter what victories he'd had in the past, no matter how God had even blessed him and given him victory in the past, or how high he went, king of Israel, he still needed a root system, and he was connected to Abishai, and Abishai showed up at just the right time. Come on, put your hands together and bless the Lord for that. Arthur, come and help me. Let me give you the same principle from a new, the same idea from a New Testament principle in 2 Corinthians when Paul was going through the battle of his life. And then we're going to go to the table of the Lord in just a minute. If you'll hold still, please, everyone. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And I want you to see Paul's root system and how it was connected. One of the things that I love about 2 Corinthians is it's really a book where Paul is being real. Very, very, very real. And he's being honest and saying, the church has problems. And it's Paul just saying, you know, this is what I'm battling. This is what I'm facing. This is what I'm going through. And Paul speaks about an incident where he was so attacked. It was so tough. He said there, there, there was no place that I could go but what there wasn't something coming at me. Constantly. In fact, he, he used words like this. He said, it was, it was coming at me from every side. How many know what it is to feel like it's coming at you from every side? Not just one problem. It's here and this, this, this one here too. And there's one everywhere I turn. It's coming at him from every side. 2 Corinthians 7. When we arrived, verse 5, when we arrived in Macedonia... And Acts 16 gives reference to their trip to Macedonia with all the beatings and the jail sentence and all that. He said, when we arrived in Macedonia, 
there was no rest for us. We face conflict from every direction with battles on the outside and fear on the inside. He said, what was taking place on the outside was affecting us internally. I remind you again, the further you go in God, the longer you're in Christianity. Giants may be less frequent, but when they come, they're big. And the apostle said this. He said, you know what? What I'm facing, this is, this is an every side giant that I'm facing. He's admitting that all that's taking place on the outside, is, it's even affecting him emotionally. He's struggling outwardly, struggling, struggling inwardly. And then he says... Those two words that ought to bring joy to the heart of every believer. Yes, it's tough everywhere. I'm not going to deny that. I can't find one place for my eye to go that I'm not facing a problem. And verse 6 says, but God. But God. How many of you need a but God moment this morning? Who wants a but God moment this morning? It's speaking of his divine intervention. Yes, this is true. Yes, this is true. This is not pretty. That's difficult. But God, look what it says. Who encourages those who are discouraged. Aren't you glad for that today? How did he do it? He encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. What, God was, what Paul was saying is this. When I asked God for comfort, he sent a person. He sent a friend. When I asked the God of all comfort to comfort me, and just like you, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring comfort. He can do what no one else can do. But how does God send us the comfort? Paul says this, when I needed comfort... And I prayed. I didn't just come to an altar and say, comfort me and God and felt some feeling that may happen for you. He said, you know what? My comfort came from the people that are a part of my life. I'm going to take a little liberty here. My comfort came from my home group. My encouragement came from my home group. The people that I chose to invest with the ones that even that were a little weird sometimes. The ones I thought were strange. But somehow God knit us together. When I needed comfort, it came from there. So as you come to an altar and ask God for his comfort, his help, saying, God, I need the root system. I, I need Abishai. I need Abishai to hold on to. I need a, I need a Titus that would come. You're asking for comfort. It's not necessarily just a feeling that you get at an altar. If you get that, great, wonderful. But your comfort, listen, friend, believe this or not, your comfort could come from Oklahoma. It could come from Waco. It could come from people in your home group. Your comfort can come most often from the people that God connects to your life when you are willing to embrace community. That when the stones and the slingshot would not work, when that which you tried and, true and proven before that you were so confident was going to work, 
It's not happening. God says this. You know what? I got a brother. I got a sister. And they are going to help you take this thing down. Ushers, would you please come and serve the people as we go to the table of the Lord? There's an old proverb from Zambia that says this. When you run alone, you run fast. But when you run together, you run far. Listen to me, please, while they're doing that. You can do both. You can receive communion and listen. Hold steady just for a minute, please. We've not dismissed yet. When you run alone, this Zambian proverb says, you run fast. But when you run together, you run far. Folks, this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. I said this is not a sprint. This is a marathon, in case you didn't know it. And we want to cross that goal line. We want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. There's no way that I could preach a message like this without having ringing in my ear what I heard my dear pastor say to us so many, many, many times from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12. A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. Thank you, Rick. A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better because a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Hallelujah. 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 I want you to know that for the next two Sundays, February 1, February 8, Pastor Todd, as the Connections Pastor, is hosting a home group expo in our cafeteria immediately following the service on both of those days. To my understanding, there are 12 home groups that are opening their doors to receive new people. Some of those are existing, I think, and some are new, newly developed, new, developing. 12 home groups that are opening their doors to receive new people. At that expo, you'll be able to meet leaders, ask questions, find out where they meet, find out what they'll be doing. And some of those groups will fill up quickly, so please don't, please don't delay. That's, that's the next two Sundays, February 1 and February 8. Back to our first text of Acts chapter 2. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals and to prayer. Our prayer service will be tonight at 6 o'clock. As a church, we're going to be calling upon God. I invite you to join us. Verse 46 of chapter 2 says, They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. As we come to the table of the Lord, we know that the Lord's Supper is all about remembering. Let me just say again, in case you can't find the bread, you have two cups that's in the bottom cup that you have that's been handed to you today. The Lord's Supper is all about remembering. We will remember. We will remember the works of your hands and we will stop and give you praise for great is your faithfulness. Let me read you from Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? 
My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and he was rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. Yet it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. Oh, but he was pierced for our rebellion. That's what we're being asked to remember today. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten, dear friends, so that you and I could be whole. And he was whipped so that we could experience and know his divine healing. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow on our own. And yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Let's stand together, please.